0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: Hi, Connor Boyle here from Intelligence Squared. Today on the podcast, we have the latest episode of the Futureverse, a podcast from Intelligence Squared and Ytree. Our host is Ytree's head of brand and marketing, Harriet Johnston. Harriet is joined by entrepreneur Michael Welch, OBE. In a career that has taken him from leaving school at 15 with no qualifications to selling his business for 50 million pounds, Michael's inspirational story is one of resilience, determination, and a clear appetite for risk. Here's Harriet with more.
2: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Futureverse, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. I'm Harriet Johnston, Ytree's Head of Brand and Marketing, and I'm hosting a series of Futureverse episodes in which we dig into topics that are closely related to Ytree's central purpose. That is, to build a world where wealth is defined by how we live, not what we have. And to get there, we're going to transform personal finance by giving transparency, efficiency, and meaning back to money. Today, we're returning to our current theme in the Futureverse, risk. So far, we've looked at financial risk in all its forms with Y-Tree's Johnny Hample and HG Capital senior partner Nick Humphreys. So do please go and look out that episode if you haven't already heard it. Next, we'll be speaking to a war correspondent and an adventurer about risking their life for their work. But today, we'll hear from an entrepreneur about the risks inherent in building a business from scratch, many times over. Joining me is Michael Welch, OBE. Michael is the founder of the online tyre retailer BlackCircles.com and tirescanner.com. After leaving school at 15, he worked as a tyre fitter before setting up his own business from his childhood bedroom, supported by a £500 grant and night shift work at a local Tesco. After a stint working as QuickFit's head of e-commerce, he launched his second business, BlackCircles.com, in 2001, the world's first click-to-fit tyre retailer. Black Circles was acquired by Michelin in 2015 for £50 million. Now he's taking on the US. He launched Tirescanner.com in 2019 before partnering with an American tire distributor and becoming president and CEO of tirebuyer.com in 2021. Michael was awarded an OBE in 2016 for services to business and charity and was awarded a Doctor of Enterprise by Edinburgh's Napier University. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Hi Harry, thanks for having me, Mike. It's quite the CV, but before we get into it, can you tell us a bit about your early life?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess for me, I didn't really have a lot of options coming out of school. I was, I kind of latterly kind of found out I was dyslexic and dys- more, more so dyscalculia. So I kind of really struggled in school, and you know, kind of when I'd finished my GCSEs, and was looking for the next step, a lot of my Peers went to college and kind of then on to university. And that kind of avenue wasn't open to me. So so I took the first job I could get, which was as a tyre fitter in a local garage, and and I guess from there I kind of I learned to to love tyres and kind of learn about the industry. And I think getting into work and kind of experiencing industry was probably the thing that I kind of enjoyed the most about kind of my my early years school. Like I say, was something that I kind of it wasn't really. It wasn't for me. So the majority of what I've kind of done to date, really, Catalyst, was getting into work and getting an opportunity, you know, on on the floor selling tyres.
2: Can I ask you about your very early life and how you got started in life? Because I do think it's important um, and our audience might be interested to understand that you didn't necessarily have what people might think of as a traditional early childhood.
3: Sure. Yeah, no, I was lucky enough, and I say this now, and I didn't feel it for many years, but I was lucky enough to be fostered and then adopted into a very loving family. My mum and dad took me on when I was a year and a bit old. So not anything I can really remember as an experience, but certainly something that has been a driver for me. Probably in my up until my early 20s, I was really driven by the need to want to prove myself of being worthy. So I kind of, I had a bit of chip on my shoulder about being given up and it gave me, it certainly gave me a really early appreciation of family and and support and really what, the, and you know, that today, personally having three kids, it's it's something that I hold very dear being a parent. I take very seriously and and invest a lot of time in, but yeah, I, I was one of the lucky ones as was my brother, who's not my, Blood brother, but he was adopted by my mum and dad a few years later as well. So it was an interesting time going through school, kind of feeling like you know I had a you know I was different, um, and also then re- realizing I couldn't really read or, or add up. So so it, it kind of survival kind of instincts were kind of on on full alert to say the least.
2: Yeah, well, right. So you went on to set up your first business when you were seventeen. Uh, What was it and how did that come about?
3: Yeah, so I was made redundant as a tyre fitter. I then had to go and find a job. So like you do, I went to the job centre and there wasn't really anything for me, which is kind of, it's the point of last resort. And there was a poster in the job centre for the Prince's Trust and they were promoting their grand scheme to help people, young people get into business or into a career. I literally came up with a, a business plan on the walk from the bus to the interview and i mean all i knew was tires so i'm like well and i knew i could kind of i knew there was a gap in the market i identified early that there was definitely a gap for high performance tires to kind of to enthusiast motorists so that that became the premise of my business plan and the trust were amazing i mean they kind of they were used to kind of half-baked ideas like mine and they helped to mentor the genesis of that idea really to kind of see if there was legs to that and we sat and we, they helped me write a business plan and they were very kind. I mean, the, the interview was for a grant and for support. And rather than just telling me no, they kind of took me to one side and gave me some, like, some advice and matched me up with somebody who could help me write this plan. Came back a couple of weeks later with my plan and it all kind of went from there, really. They gave me a £500 grant. I bought a computer. They gave me an office space in Egbeth above an Ethel Austin's shop, if you remember those, maybe not, maybe it might have been a Northern England thing, with the Chamber of Commerce, a guy called Hugh, who was my mentor or my carer. It was more more a carer than a mentor at that point, really. Make sure I didn't waste the £500. And he helped me develop the plan and kind of asked for a line of credit from the suppliers who were supplying the garage that I was working at. And they were kind enough to, I don't know how or why, but they gave me, two weeks, a line of credit. So I was buying and selling tires and built a website with the computer that I bought. So I wasn't really thinking about building an e-commerce business. It was just a really efficient way for me to get my prices to an audience in a cost-effective way in terms of marketing. So that was really quite successful, relatively speaking. And think and QuickFit were looking to develop an online and specialist proposition. I was approached by some of their guys from the Midlands. Um, and then like, literally next thing I know I'm in Edinburgh and I meet Sir Tom Farmer and Graham Bissett, who was the Group finance director, and Tony Lockery, who's the CEO. In a matter of months, I've moved to Edinburgh and I'm working with those guys and we're building quickfit.com. How old were you then? 19, yeah, 19. Didn't really know what I was talking about. I mean, they say saying in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. I mean, I was kind of, I knew a bit, but I would, by no means was I the expert. And then there was a kind of a real twist of luck because QuickFit were acquired by Ford quite soon after. And because e-commerce obviously was kind of the th- quite the thing in the early 2000s I, or late 90s, early 2000s, I was asked to go with a group of QuickFit people to Ford and basically start to integrate ourselves. I mean, literally months earlier, I was fit, I was fitting tires. We kind of year earlier I was fitting I mean, it was just a wild ride to that point. I mean, imposter syndrome doesn't even come into it. I mean, I was an imposter, full stop. <laughs> so but I learned a lot. And I guess one of the one of the early lessons for me was that don't don't be afraid to ask what might seem to be the daft question. Because what I found, because I, I, I didn't know not to. So I would ask a lot a bit like a kid right so but why but how and what I was finding was that in these kind of corporate environments there's a lot of people who nod a lot but actually want to ask a question but they don't want to be seen to be so I was a bit of I was kind of plowing a furrow for the and when I was in these groups people are like oh great he's in so he'll get the answers so so I I found you're the proverbial sponge, really. I was just kind of learning and soaking it up and being as as open as I possibly could. Again, it, the, the lessons within there for me were, if you need help, you've got to ask. It doesn't matter how smart or how kind of developed you think you are in your career or your business. You don't know it all. It's impossible to know it all. And actually to ask for help and support or mentoring from from anybody, you'd be surprised. And I've built a career and several businesses now, I wouldn't say off the back of asking and getting help off of people, but certainly I've got a lot further than I would have had I not reached out and asked people for their support. Um, I think that's critical. And actually then being willing to go and deploy that support and being open and not being, um, you know, being humble, I think is really important.
2: But you left QuickFit after two years with one month's salary to start Black Circles. Now, that feels risky to me. So what motivated that decision? And did it feel risky to you at the time? It's
3: maybe an an extreme, but we come from nothing or not a lot. You're able to see progress. And for me, progress equals happiness, right? So if we're in in everything, and that's not necessarily financial or business, it's just life. I had identified on the back of my first business, which was a mail-order tire business, and then my QuickFit experience that actually, if I was able to assemble a network of garages to to offer an install service to the tires that I was selling before nationwide, I wouldn't have the cost, and it would give me a competitive advantage against the likes of QuickFit. And Tom Farmer always used to say, the independence of the bane of our lives. How do these guys survive? How do they, and it always came down to service always. And I was like, well, I wonder if I could persuade these independent guys, because they're inherently great with their customers. That's something that they can't, you just can't fake it. So if I could get them to kind of join a network and I could pay them well to install my customer's tires, I wouldn't really need to train them. I wouldn't really need, because, It just comes, if you get the right guys, it comes naturally. So I just couldn't get, that was an itch that I just could not scratch. I was just like, and then Tom and some of the senior guys, Graham Bissons, they they left the business um, around that, just after the sale and around, and it just wasn't the same. And, And I, you know, I just felt like, I just felt compelled. I needed to do it. I needed to go and try it, do something.
2: Is it fair to say that you're happiest when you're being scrappy and innovative and maybe not so much when
3: it sort of goes into a different corporate mindset? I like a challenge. It's funny you say that. I would say latterly, I definitely put myself in a position where there's a there's a more core in a more corporate environment. There's a different way to land the message, deliver the strategy, motivate people. But I think a lot of the fundamentals are the same communication, being clear, concise, using information, not, you know, operating at will. And I think a lot of the fundamentals apply, but it's on a different stage. And I wasn't ready back then to kind of be kind of consumed into a corporate environment, but I felt. It, that probably wasn't the main motivation. The main motivation was I felt it was such a compelling opportunity. Yeah, so I engaged local enterprise council, Scottish Enterprise, and about some support, and they said we've got a little office that you can have for free for a while in Peebles. I'm like, where's Peebles? <laughs> so, so I travelled down to Peebles, and they gave me some, some 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 basic a little bit of financial support. I think it was fifteen hundred pounds, and they gave me the office for for three months but then i had to start a business and get it moving and get cash flow and so that's what i set about doing
2: and so how did you said you are good at asking for help which again shows a risk taker because you're obviously you got to be ready for people to say no so was there anyone in that in those early days um who was important in lending you a hand
3: yeah definitely so when i got black circles moving kind of two a couple of years in I'm kind of just reading as much as I can. That was kind of to get motivated, keep reading, keep and that what I re, I kind of realized as well was, and it's part of kind of a dyslexic bit of a dyslexic brain, but the you are we are more likely to take risks because that's the way we work. It's about it's about getting to the end point. It's in a different way and much quicker. We haven't really got it's the kind of the way the wiring works. And but what I realized was I didn't really have the the knowledge about how to retail, how to be, I mean, I could sell tires, but how do we retail? How do we merchandise? How do we procure? How do we engage customers? One of the readings that I was doing was I was subscribed to Fortune magazine and this guy, Terry Leahy, was, was, it was a cartoon picture of him on the front page and he, it was like his seventh year running. He was uh, Fortune Business Person of the Year. So I read the article and in the article, I've circled it. He sent me, I've got it somewhere, circled a bit. He's from Liverpool. And I said, well, there you go. We must be related. <laughs> so I sent him a letter. And I said, look, Terry, I'm, you don't know me, but I'm, he sent me the letter back recently. I mean, he, he, like, he's like, I was going through my archives. I found the letter. Honestly, it was brilliant. And, but I said, look, could you spare me an hour, half an hour for a cup of tea just to talk about, how to retail, because this is what I'm trying to do, and this is what I'm do. And I got a letter back. That was on the Thursday. I got a letter back on the Tuesday from him saying, come and join me at Chesson's head office. Now, at that point, Tesco's, is he's grown Tesco's from like 5 billion sales to 70. Like, it's one of the biggest grocery retailers on the planet. And, it, and within a few, and now, interestingly, when I went to see him, I said to him, why, like, what? I didn't think my letter would get through. He said well, everybody thinks that's probably why it did. Because the assumption is, why bother? Why reach out? Why send a letter? And I'm sure there's a filtering system. I mean, the guy had three three PAs, right? But it's not a big bag of mail. It's people don't people really don't reach out to the CEO like that. So so we had a two-hour sit down. He gave me his number. He said, if you need anything just call and from there he he was just an he's an amazing guy and an amazing talent and he taught me from the he then he subsequently invested and then he joined my board and then like I say we're friends today we've invested in things together but he taught me the biggest lesson I got from him was was around the numbers and that was my kind of I would kind of written that off a little bit I'm like I can sell stuff but I can't count but I understand intrinsically I understand the numbers, but not in a p cash flow balance sheet kind of traditional way. And what he taught me to do is use the numbers like a map. So the understand the intrinsic link between what you see on the page and what's actually happening in the business. So observe the patterns, understand what drives that number to be up, that number to be down. And once I got to that, I used to say, he always used to say to me, get underneath the numbers. And I'm like, well, I am. It's like no you're just reading the numbers you need to get under the numbers and then and then it, it clicked and that for me was the turning point.
2: So just at the point where you'd watch the numbers really going up like black circles was extremely profitable in 2015 you sell it. So did that feel like another big
3: risk? It was a personal risk because I didn't really want to do it which is it's got to be careful with how I frame this because nobody's going to feel Sorry for me, right? I mean, it's a very fortunate position to be in. We're very lucky. We, as a group, I think we all did very well. And Michelin got a great deal, and they got a great business. But I wasn't ready. What I realised was the the journey from start from an idea to that point. It's only really usually the best time to sell a business is when you least want to. So when I when you see people trying to sell businesses, it's highly likely that the outcome's not really going to be what they want or the, what they aspired to. Usually the best deals are when you get taken out when you're at your app you're at your, the peak of your ascendancy or that kind of real inflection point on what the next phase is going to look like. And we were there. I mean we were making money we were strategically we're looking at the US and internationalizing and but it was the right deal. Every one of my shareholders and my advisors, we got to the point on it was a Saturday and michelin we came round again and it was like right this is the last final are we going to do this this is the offer these are the terms it was a saturday and they gave it was a deadline sun midday on the sunday and they'd all turn their phones off so i'm phoning around i'm actually sitting in the west end so i'm having a bacon roll and i'm trying to phone i've got like two hours to go and i'm trying to phone guys to get terry and graham and kevin and not nobody's returning my and and it was that was the, probably one of the loneliest moments of the whole experience, but thrilling as well. It was, and, it, and, se- and selling the business at that point to Michelin was the right thing to do because I'm a great believer in the story that you tell with the things that you do. And it's not as grand as a legacy as such, but it's for us to do what we did and sell to the world's largest tire manufacturer, most respective tire manufacturer, was great and the financial situation for the group was a was great but also that like I say the story and the longevity and it's doing a great job today um was I'm really proud of that but I wasn't ready.
2: Even though you you tried your best to stay away from the industry after after the sale of Black Circles you're very much back in it and you're now in the U.S. market
3: what brought you back? Uh, yeah so the hangover from that really I was like the U.S. is such a I mean it's like It's many times the size, like thirty times the size of the UK, and it's innovative, but it's not as innovative of what we've seen in Europe. So I kind of always knew that we needed and wanted. I needed interest and needed. I wanted needed to do something here. That was that's risk and being able to say, "You gotta try, you gotta try, and you gotta fail and." you've got to fall and you've got to learn to be able to then win and to not, I, yeah, I kind of felt like it was, I needed to take that plunge. We needed to take that risk. So at that point we had one child, Sophia, she was really young. I think she's like one, yeah, one or two. And I persuaded my wife that this was a shoe in, right? The U S was going to be straightforward. It was a template job blueprint. I mean, these are the sorts of words. So let's try it. And she's like, well, yeah, great. If that's what you, if it's that easy, why not? (laughs) So then we, so when we came to Miami and we set up and then literally had like a notebook and some plane tickets and I started just to travel and I I tell you, I was sat in Atlanta airport, a kind of a couple of months in and I'm like, Just looking at the the departures and arrivals screen, I'm like, I've completely underestimated this. Like, this country is ginormous. I mean, I knew it was big, but it was like, and my wife's phoning me, so how are you getting on? I'm like, brilliant. It's going really well. Like, it was one of the, but once you're in, and when you understand the market, understand the customers, build the model. So, we ploughed on and invested the, uh, my own finances in building tyre scanner, which was kind of a version of black circles. It was actually starting to show some green shoots. I mean, the money's coming out of the account like like water off a dike. I mean, it's like <laughs> and again, it's we have. I'm having these check-ins with Victoria, and I'm like, it's really, ha- it's happening, it's coming. We're starting to t- and we were starting to turn the corner. And then we had a ch- and then we had a chance meeting with with ATD, who are the biggest tire distributor in America, in the world, actually. And they had this tirebuyer.com property uh, business. And quite quickly, they were like, we see what you're doing. We love what you're doing. We've got this. How about if we, and that was out of the blue, that's luck. But again, what i found in terms of the luck that we've had, you've got to be in a position for that luck to find you. So luck follows risk. In, in, in almost all cases you've got to be doing something different to find it doesn't it in my experience it very rarely does it find you in the same position that you've always been and you need to put yourself out there
2: no it seems to me that yeah one risk after another has has paid off for you but again you've got to you've got to put the risk out there to to find the luck have there been any risks that haven't paid off
3: Yeah, I mean, we've made some investments. We've had some businesses that haven't worked out, and that's really sad. I invest a lot of my own emotion into what I do. I think actually probably having kids has helped me kind of place kind of that kind of emotive drive into family than into business. But I am very much what you see is what you get. I put myself out there, and that's great when things are going really well. But when things don't go so well there are consequences to that. It's painful, it's hard. But I guess, again, the lessons within that are if you have integrity and you try your best, and it's a cliche, but you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. And I think that because you're forced to really dig into your soul and dig into dig dig into dig into the path that's got you to kind of where you've got to. And look, there's lots of stuff that I wish I hadn't done, but also lots of stuff that I'm glad we did do. And even if things didn't work out, the way we might have wanted, but you've got to try. And like I say, it you've got to you've got to try new things, and you've got to take risks to find luck.
2: So you've you've been very open about saying that you yeah you you put a lot of yourself into your business. Your predisposition is to go all out. So how do you balance that now? Find a sense of calm or avoid. That tipping into a place where it's disruptive to your family or disruptive for you personally.
3: Yeah, it's quite diff. It's quite difficult. I think when we got to three kids, they kind of they start to try. The sheer number and energy and noise certainly focuses the mind. It's a force of nature, probably more than it is upon me, as opposed to something from me. But I think it's ex- experience tells you that it helps you balance what's important and what's not. That being said, the basis of everything I do comes from. A point a position of of being genuine and being authentic and that's going to be a kind of some people are going to like that and some people aren't going to like that and and there's going to be consequences of that so it's making sure for me so it's making sure that i can regulate you know whatever my the output is that comes from whatever situation good or bad and that's just training.
2: It's training and, and, and a bit of maturity as you get as you get older, maybe you, you learn to take that second before the before reacting. Maybe. I don't know. I, I haven't learned that yet. I'm nearly 45. So
3: no, <laughs> no, I think that's right. For me, the probably my background and the biggest reward for me, and again, this is not for this is not for a quote or for to sound like I'm trying to say the right thing. I for me, the biggest dividend out of anything that I've ever achieved is my children, and that is because I've been fortunately able to appreciate what how important it is to have, to be in a loving family from a very young age. And I think most of us, and my kids actually, they won't know any different. And if we're doing a good enough job, they won't know any different. So it's sometimes it's hard to really appreciate. What you've got until you haven't got it. And so so my kind of certainly my balance is become easier with the family, as you say, the kind of some maturity that comes with that and the experience and and that allows me to from some of the failures as well. And it certainly allows me to kind of to invest the emotional piece in the right areas without losing that authenticity and the drive in the business sense, because the day I stop enjoying what I do, I'll just stop doing it. I mean, I, I, that's that's the reality. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it because I can.
2: When we think about risk, I guess we also have to acknowledge that there are many, many young people who, like you, might be leaving school at 15, no qualifications, and yeah. they might be considered at risk. You know, that's a risky position to be in. Um, are you are you motivated now by thinking about those young people? Are you? Absolutely. Are you, do you no, still feel very connected to the fifteen-year-olds who we were when circles, you left school?
3: we, our purpose is to support a critical illness. My wife's a paediatric nurse, a critical illness, and adoption, fostering, and education, and support for kids who need a leg up. Frankly, so kind of from kind of more deprived type environments, and we we. That in we probably didn't have much time in two thousand and sixteen after black circles, but more latterly it's become much more of a passionate play for me because again i'm the what you do shouldn't really define you, but certainly it, it gives a bit of a narrative to when you look I want my kids to be proud of me about what I did, but not from an ego perspective because you want to do good if you can if you're fortunate enough to be in a position where you can, and we've we're now double it really doubling down on that so we support the grant giving program that the Princess trust gave to me so we support that financially and across the country we're working with Princess trust on their some of their centers so setting up some of their centers across the country not least liverpool and i i've just joined the board actually of the Princess trust north america to help set up the same programs here and I'm trying to do some stuff in adoption and fostering here in, in the light of the roadway, road versus way. If you know about all of that, but in the US it's quite making quite big waves, but there'll be implications on fostering and adoption. So trying to get in early and see if we can do some work on that too. Because this stuff really is this I mean, the business stuff is great, but it facilitates stuff like this that really matters. So it's really important that you know, when all is said and done, I think, pers- and this is a personal perspective, you've done the most you could do in as focused a way as possible. To say you can't, say you did, to be proud of what you did, and it's not for anybody else to put accolades and plaudits against it. It's, it's this sense of achievement, and as I say, the dividend that comes out of this stuff is way bigger than anything that comes out of selling a company. I can tell you, because I've been in both situations, it's a, you know, to be able to be able to be in a position where you can make a difference and actually see that happen is just a it's a blessing, it's a gift.
2: Much of our work at Ytree is about helping our clients understand their own personal sort of financial risk level. Do you approach investing with the same appetite for risk that you do your business endeavours, so say your, your personal investments, your personal financial life?
3: Yeah, yeah, I would say probably moderate risk. <laughs> Trying to, I mean, it's a lot. we take a lot of risks. So there's a, the, back to the kind of the point about the family, just making sure that we don't take unnecessary risks when it comes to their kind of future, making sure that we can secure that in the best way we can but i think the biggest risk is not taking any risks you know you've got to take some sort of risk to move forward and if you don't then circumstance will sort that out for you so you need to be in control to the extent that it's like skiing right you lean into your skis you can control the hill lean back and you're on your backside and i think that the same applies in in investment investing and in 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 business, we're probably more a green or a green and a blue in personal investment, and it's a black diamond in business.
2: Sounds right. You've got to lean into what you understand, right? Take the risk where you're the expert. I want to say thank you so much, Mike, for being with us today. It's a real privilege to get to hear such an amazing story of risks well taken and also the learnings that come from the, the harder part of risk taking, you know? If any of the issues we've discussed in today's episode piqued your interest, please visit y-tree.com to find out more about Y-Tree and the work we're doing to provide an alternative perspective on money and life. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And feel free to explore our back catalogue of content if you want to learn more about money and life. Michael Welch, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared Business. This episode was produced and edited by Isabella Soames. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligentsquared.com. For more information about Ytree, visit y-tree.com. And for more episodes of the Futureverse, search Futureverse wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.